Big Ideas, Nursing in the Middle East during World War I, presented by Nadia Attia. This talk was recorded on the 2nd of March 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. So, the paper I'm going to give um, in the next 45 minutes or so is really introducing you to this project, and so far... Um, most of the stuff that I've looked at, most of the stuff that I'll be talking about um, this afternoon is held at other archives, ironically. So I'll be drawing on a lot of the Imperial War Museum's collections, the Brereton Library's collections, um, and the Red Cross archives at Moorgate, um, as you'll see in a second. But the idea here really is to kind of give you a brief overview of what I'm hoping to look more into once I've had the time and the chance to, to do the the, the other research and to give you a kind of idea of what we know so far about the women who served in the Middle East during the First World War. And this paper is going to be about nurses, but the, the project itself will look more broadly um, at so lots of the other women who served in the Middle East. So doctors, very handful of doctors, but others also, some famous, some less so. And I'm very happy to talk about that at the end if we've got time um, for questions. But let me, let me get started. Um, so the image of the nurse is perhaps one of the most familiar in First World War studies. It's also, I would argue, one of the most frequently fictionalised experiences of women's war work. Um, the figure of the nurse, a ministering angel in white who comes to the aid of a wounded man in desperate pain, was and continues to be a source of fascination and banality, simultaneously fetishised and marginalised. And while we're familiar with a number of nursing narratives based on and around the Western Front, the figure of the nurse outside Europe remains elusive, or perhaps even in Europe, but outside the Western Front. This is, in part, a side effect of the fact that despite work by a number of important scholars, I'm thinking here of people like Michelle Barrett, Shantanu Das, David Amici, Melvin Page, Hugh Strawn, and many others, we continue to be less familiar with the First World War outside of Europe. This paper is going to look at the experiences of women who nursed in the Middle East during the First World War. What was their lived experience of service in those theatres of war? In analysing these experiences, I'm particularly interested in exploring the gap, sometimes quite considerable, as you'll hear shortly, between expectations and attendant restrictions placed upon these women by ideologies of gender, race and empire, and women's actual recollections of their experiences once the messy and unpredictable business of war was underway. So thousands of women, we have no definite number, and one of the things I'm hoping to do, especially with the archives held here at the National Archives, but also with those held at the Red Cross Archive, is to try and get a definite number. We can't get a definite, definite number, but to get an idea of how many women served, in what capacity, and where. So. These are the records held at, the, at Moorgate by the British Red Cross. And as you'll see, they have, they have a book of, of women. Some of them were administrators, some of them were cooks, some of them were, you know, people's wives who went out, so a general's wife, or um, who went out and then either helped out in hospitals or helped out administratively while they were out there. Um, but also, the, the, most famously, the VADs, and it's those cards on the right-hand side that you can see there, um, that record sometimes quite, some might say, quite mundane information. So, for example, we have here Olive Buswell, <laughs> and you can see, you know, it's got 
just boring information, things like how old she was, what she did, when she joined, where she went. But for me, it's also, this is the most interesting information. So the fact that we know that she went off to Cairo, but also the inclusion at the bottom of this so-called kind of boring bureaucratic form of a line that enables us to, to kind of see what her superiors thought of her character. The idea that character should be part of this kind of bureaucratic process is quite interesting to me, as I will go on to discuss. These are the kinds of things that we have, but that we don't yet have collated in usable um, information. Um, so thousands of women um, served as nurses in the Middle East during the First World War. The majority of them fall into two categories, trained nurses or volunteer nurses. The largest group of trained nurses had signed up to Queen Alexandra's Imperial Nursing Service, whose acronym I'll be using continuously and is QAIMNS, uh, or its reserve. Q-A-I-M-N-S are uh, trips off the tongue, as you can imagine. These women uh, were predominantly British, but especially in the Middle East, many were Australians, New Zealanders, or Canadians. Women of the empire rose to support their menfolk as they answered the British call to arms. The other large group of women were VADs, Voluntary Aid Detachment Workers. These women had volunteered with the Red Cross and Order of St. John of Jerusalem either before or at the outbreak of war. Such women had little or no experience of nursing before the war. In general, these women were there to assist the more experienced QAI-MNS nurses. Those who were sent to the Middle East were quite often seen as better. Again, this is just stuff I've gleaned from the archives so far. Um, they were quite often seen as better, more accomplished VADs, um, who were then chosen to work in these tougher climes and tougher conditions. Um, we might bear that in mind as I go on to think about the way in which their experiences have been represented. In addition to these women, who were by far you know, the, the most numerous of the nurses who served in the Middle East, um, women from Queen Alexandra's Royal Naval Nursing Service, the Indian Nursing Service and its reserve, and the Territorial Force Nursing Service, TFNS, also worked in Europe and beyond. So that's the kind of those are the kinds of women who were doing this. The First World War made unprecedented demands on the civilian populations of the belligerent empires. The distinction between trained nurses and volunteer nurses would become an important one during the war as a civilian population was mobilised to care for an unprecedented number of patients so far from their homes. The combination of untrained or semi-trained women of the voluntary aid detachments and those women who had chosen careers in nursing and had training and experience was one of the defining features of service. Um, the First World War came at a crucial uh, juncture for the history of nursing, of the nursing profession. Historians of nursing identify the war as a key turning point for the recognition of professional trained nurses and for their subsequent regulation by law. The College of Nursing, later the Royal College of Nursing, was established in 1916, so during the war, and Nurses' Re Registration Act were finally passed in December 1919. So it's a really important point for, for the professionalisation of nursing. And it's perhaps because of this, or at least partly because of this, that tensions between QAIMNS nurses, Queen Alexandra's nurses, and VADs were noted by many women um, serving in the Middle East. So... 
a woman called uh, Daisy Colnett Spickett, remembered in an Imperial War Museum interview, and I'm quoting her now from this interview, that some um, Queen Alexander's nurses had a bee in their bonnet because they thought we, VADs that is, were probationers, and that after the war we would be regarded as practically trained nurses, which was nonsense, you see. On the Aquitania, a hospital ship on which she served, they were charming, and they were so sweet to us, just took us into the, co- uh, into the core. Couldn't have been nicer, and many, many of the Britannic, another hospital ship, sisters did. But there were more who did object to us, and one can understand it. Eleanor Short, another British nurse who served with Queen Alexandra's Imperial Nursing Service, spent three years serving in the Middle East. She began aboard the hospital ship Oxfordshire in the Dardanelles in 1915 and went on to work in Mesopotamia and Persia between about 1916 and 1918. She recalled that trained nurses, and I'm quoting her now, didn't like them, didn't like VADs much at first. We thought they were rather sort of pampered, she says. Didn't know what it was like to rough it, but they soon learned. And that's the end of that quote from her, again held at the Imperial War Museum. Spickett was able to identify that women like her, who resented the presence of VADs, feared for their own position in a profession that had yet to establish and define itself. She reflected many years later that this was needless worry as, and I'm quoting her again, they could have taken it for granted that hardly a single VAD wanted to nurse. I think hardly any of them went on nursing, but I think that was really the basis of any trouble we had. Very little has been written about women's war service outside Europe. In the Middle East in particular, it's the touristic and light-hearted nature of nursing narratives that has received most attention. Egypt, with its ancient sites replete with cultural and historical significance for British women, and its relatively large contingent of nurses and troops, was a huge draw for touristic experiences and their retelling and documentation. Christine Hallett's authoritative account of nursing in the First World War suggests that the centrality of these experiences to to women's accounts of their First World War service was simply a result of the fact that they were more interesting than relating mundane ward life. She writes, I'm quoting Hallett here, the diaries of nurses who practiced far from home read like travelogues. They took their work for granted and did not often write about it, commenting instead on the journeys they made and the places they visited. Nursing work was a commonplace. Travel was an adventure, something that without the opportunity to offer war service, they might never have experienced, end quote. Certainly, the main focus of women's accounts of service in the Middle East is the adventure of travel rather than the trauma of caring for sick and wounded men. And here I thought you might like to see some of the stuff that you find in these women's papers. So, from the little collection at Leeds, you find these everywhere. Um, Sleeves of Kodak developed photos. Beautiful, I think. Quite wonderful to see. Um, And incongruous in the extreme in a wartime setting, as I'll go on to discuss. And there you go, the guidebook, Cairo, how to see it in amongst this woman's papers. And then some of the stuff, I mean, I hope you can read that, okay, from where you are, that you have. 
really, really incongruous again. So here we have a dinner card that looks incredibly luxurious for a wartime setting. And of course, the photographs, of which you have many, and some of these here. This one taken from Leeds again. These, actually, because they're group shots of these women in these field hospitals, um, don't look too touristic. But then, it's this kind of thing. Um, always, of course, posed, and absolutely in the papers of almost every single woman who served in Egypt that I've, I've encountered so far. And, um, I mean, this is what they did in their leisure time, and, and they did the kind of various trips. So here you have these women in front of the Sphinx on camels. Here, again, pyramid and Sphinx on camels. And then sometimes they're on mules, you know, for variation. <laughs> and they go by night, they go by day, and that's what they do, you know. Um, but this kind of thing. And this, I, I'm going to talk about this, this lady in a little while. Um, this was a really interesting photo archive um, held at the Red Cross archives. Um, Howie, as she was known, um, and refers to herself throughout. And if you see this, this woman's papers, um, that I'm going to go on to discuss in a second, um, she went on to have a really prestigious career, actually. Um, but her photos... Are, they just look like somebody's holiday. She served in Palestine. And things like this, a beach shot at Jaffa. You could not tell up to this point, I don't think, that we're in a war zone, perhaps not even at this point, with all the pictures of picnics. And then, of course, you get something like this, as I'll go on to discuss. Okay, so give you some, some other examples. Anne Hill's diaries held at the Imperial War Museum describe her service uh, with Queen Alexandra's nursing service on several hospital ships around the Mediterranean. I won't list them all for you. Hill's diary draws on familiar uh, tropes of the travel log. She describes her war work as an adventure and, like the Victorian and early 20th century um, travellers, she was both thrilled and comforted by the affinity and strangeness she felt with the Middle East, a place that she had a mental image of but had not actually experienced until that moment. Her letters often took the form of diary entries and were full of wonders of the East. She wrote to her mother on July 25th, 1915, that she had seen, and I'm quoting her now, Pompey's Pillar and two sphinxes near the catacombs. The most interesting is also the River Nile. We also saw a lot of sheep and two cows. Anne Hills's list is a comical combination of the exotic and the banal, suggesting a thrill and wonder at all she saw and experienced, and a desire to record even the smallest details of her travels. She was certainly taken by Egypt and by travel in general. And one letter, that's the one dated September 26th there, for you to her mother she says this place is most fascinating some say the novelty will soon wear off but uh, if i stay here months i'm sure it won't the weather is still hot but i have never felt it very much we've not done much sightseeing in the native bazaars yet such quaint things there are to be seen imagine she says actually seeing arabs in the desert on camels hills's wonder at seeing the biblical arabs 
um, brought to life before her very eyes is notable, given she would have been surrounded by them all the time. <laughs> Later, when volunteers were requested for Mesopotamia or East Africa, some of the most difficult places to serve during the First World War, um, Hills writes that, she writes to her mother, that she could not miss the opportunity to put my name down for East Africa. With very little said about her life on the wards or on the ships, one cannot help but note her excitement and her appreciation of the opportunity to travel, all of which seem very far from the war zone in which she was, of course, located. Mary Rummy recalled that in her time off, she saw the Sphinx and pyramids, discovered sea bathing. Again, Mary Rummy's uh, being interviewed at the Imperial War Museum. I'm quoting her now. Um, bathing, bathing was a great thing, she told her interviewer in an interview several years after the war. An elderly Mary Rummy reflected on the opportunities for travel and adventure that the war had offered her. And she says, it was full of interest. We went through the Grecian archipelago, which of course was a thing I could never have done otherwise, on a route that you wouldn't ordinarily take. And I was seeing the beauties of the world. And fortunately, I knew it. In my school days in Geneva, you see, I knew just what I was seeing. I was just in heaven. Well, I was in heaven, she says. Mary Rumney was able to appreciate the sights she associated with her school days, the fabled locations of the classics, and understood even at the time, or so she thought many years later, that these were adventures not offered by Cook and Sons, even to those with the means to visit the Mediterranean of their own accord. At first glance, many diaries read much like travel logs, with little or no reference made to nursing work or the war itself. Miss E. Campbell was an Australian nurse who served in Queen Alexandra's um, Imperial Nursing Service between 1915 and 1919. We don't have a first name for her. She's just Miss Campbell. She worked in um, Alexandria and then various unnamed hospitals in Egypt and India and on hospital ships uh, around the Mediterranean. And Campbell noted almost nothing but adventures in her war diary held at the Imperial War Museum. So she says, 23rd of October, went to Cairo till Monday. Started at 9.30 for the pyramids, had a good ride out photo on camel. <laughs> Nile was lovely, and so on and so forth. Uh, went in motor to pyramids at 7pm. Full moon, beautiful sight. And at first glance, Pat Tuckett, a Canadian nurse with Queen Alexandra's nursing service, who served at the New Zealand hospital um, in Egypt, seems to have done nothing but have days out, dine at hotels, have afternoon tea, and so on. Pat Tuckett says, 24th of September, off for half a day, went in bathing with Janet and Ethel. Janet and I went uptown, and Victor Hasley, etc., etc. Had tea at Gropies, went to Kodak. 23rd of October, up at 2pm for the picnic. Motored in the ambulance, 15 miles, to Old Khedive Palace and Grotto there. Had tea. Went to etc., etc. Went to see the stores at Cairo, 4th of Jan... 5th of March, went to the Catacombs of Pompeii's Pillar, her spelling, not mine, took pictures. Um, 12th of October, Ethel and I went to Groppies for tea, had a manicure, astonishingly, right? We motored out to Mustafa and Sidi before duty. Okay, so these and numerous other examples read as uncanny travelogues in a war zone. The reality of Tuckett's regular manicures, teas, outings, to a variety of leisure and touristic um, activities and especially for the modern reader i think trips to kodak and cook and sons 
serve to disrupt our expectations of war service and to suggest the leisured and even luxurious experience of war that sits at odds with the received image of the nurse, particularly during the First World War. It's difficult for the modern reader to encounter war memoirs like Hills's, Rumney's, that are full of fun and adventure. They are incongruous in the extreme. However, the emphasis on the overlap with the travelogue has rather diminished our impression of how difficult service in the Middle East was for these women, many of whom had never experienced much beyond domestic life in relatively sheltered middle or upper class homes. Apart from the hardships of climate, substandard accommodation, the dangers of serving on hospital ships and the diseases to which they succumbed, in these parts of the world, critical focus on the fun they had recorded in photographs and wonderful letters has led us perhaps a little too far from the realities of wartime nursing in the Middle East. Contained, but not so prominent in these women's life writing, are also descriptions of sometimes sad or harrowing, but often simply mundane, war experience. Pat Tuckett's very brief laconic diary entries, for example, might be filled with manicures and trips to Cook and Sons, but among these seemingly frivolous experiences in Cairo are recollections of her war service. These are rare and stand in stark contrast to the tourism which dominates her recollections. So, she wrote on the 27th of August, off from Tental 1, two patients died in 21A, received pictures today, went in bathing in the Mediterranean after dinner, beautiful moonlight night. 7th of December, up at 4.30, Warner and I met Captain Taylor and Lieutenant Brown, had tea with them. They brought us a huge box of chocolates. I had a manicure and a hairdress. Received convoy of frozen feet from Peninsula today. It's difficult to interpret these stark facts thrown in among the everyday, sometimes rather indulgent, activities listed alongside them. Is such a combination a coping mechanism, a way of processing the horrors of a convoy of frozen feet by a young, naive woman who had experienced little outside her close and prosperous family up until this point? Should we read such casual insertion of death and war trauma as callous and uncaring? While it's clear that many women use their spare time to visit the sites, the reality of war service could very quickly catch up with them no matter how many trips to the pyramids or the catacombs they went on. These women, particularly those serving with Queen Alexandra's Imperial Nursing Service, had signed up for war service and were not free to come and go as they pleased. No matter how touristic their experiences of war seemed to be from these accounts. And I want to give you just, just one brief example. Um, W.E.B. Lee's, Winnie Lee's um, papers held at the Imperial War Museum um, give us a really good example of how this kind of seemingly easy, touristic, adventurous life isn't. It's actually war service and you can't, there's no getting away from it, no matter how much we focus on the Kodak sleeves. So she served from September 1915 um, all around the Middle East, and her letters um, end, I think, in March 1916. Winnie, as she signed her letters to various family members, wrote long 
diary-like letters which often stretched on for days or even weeks before being sent, like a travelogue. Most often to her mother, but also to her sister and infrequently to her father in Britain. For many months, Winnie's letters, like many others, suggest a leisured life, filled mainly with trips to see the sights. So she wrote to her sister of trips where she and her colleagues sat at the foot of a 4000 BC tomb and had lunch for about an hour. Um, so on and so forth. Her letters stretched on for days, but while describing the scene um, that I've just been reading to you, suddenly she breaks off. She says, How can I go on with this letter? Yesterday evening, Matron brought the wire from Walter, her brother, telling the sad news. It is so sudden and unexpected, and oh dear, I do feel such a horrible long way from home. I keep wishing and wishing that I had never come, and now I shall not hear anything for a fortnight. Such an age to wait. All of a sudden, Winnie learns of her mother's unexpected death. And the realities of being miles from home and of communication that take weeks or months to catch up with life events are all too prominent, all too important. For weeks, Winnie Lee continued to receive letters from her deceased mother, for example. She wrote, It seems strange to keep on receiving little short letters from mother, written in such a bright way, feeling quite herself, and then just little remarks from you and Greta that she has a cold and seems very feeble at times. Anyway, it is one way very reassuring, because I know at any rate that she had not a long illness, a thing she always dreaded. I do wish I could be at home to help. I keep on wishing and wishing that I had gone home from Alex, Alexandria there. But Winnie was desperate to go home, but without the independent means to do so, and tied to her war service, she was forced to continue to serve in Egypt, and later on hospital ships, and in Lemnos, where her letters came to an end. While these memoirs and letters and diaries bear the hallmarks of the travelogue, then, their dismissal as travelogues in a war zone has led us, I believe, to overlook the complexities of war service for women in the Middle East photographs of women enjoying themselves and letters perhaps tellingly empty of all references to the war have kept us from noting that they also nursed men on all surfaces of hospital ships under tarpaulin in makeshift hospitals and for about 16 hour shifts constantly on the move as the war moved and with varying but consistently poor standards of accommodation the amount of leisure time and opportunities for experience available to these women seems to have vexed contemporaries as much as it does modern commentators. The rest of my paper is going to think about that. It's going to think about the worries around how these women behaved. In the Middle East, where VADs and Queen Alexandra's nurses had periods of intense work, but also periods with little to do but bathe in the sea, go sightseeing, simply spend time having teas, picnics or engaging in other leisure activities, worries about the ways in which these young women were behaving became all the more prominent. The figure of the nurse was defined by a number of characteristics in 1914. The Nightingale ideals of respectability, chastity, discretion, morality, single women of impeccable moral standards, as Martha Vissinus describes them in her book Independent Women. She says, I'm quoting business here, nurses who drank, accepted tips, catered to the whims of favourite patients and lacked training were to be replaced 
by devoted and disciplined paragons of womanly service. I'm intrigued by the idea of a paragon of womanly service. Such a vision of the nurse, as has been well documented by the work of Margaret Higginay, Susan Grazel and others, was mobilised effectively as propaganda during the war. The nurse, in her pure white nun-like uniform, came to symbolise purity and self-sacrificing devotion to the cause of an allied victory, especially after the execution of Edith Cavell in 1915. Letters to VADs on their way to the Middle East gave such essential advice as discipline is the utmost importance, great punctuality, scrupulous neatness in dress and absolute obedience. Members should stand up when spoken to by staff nurses. Sisters and medical officers ask a few questions as possible, carry out implicitly every instruction given them, be prepared to do any work, however menial. And then my favourite, the last one on the end there, it is most essential to keep up the discipline of the ward as so much depends on the conduct of nurses. And obviously also, second favourite, never sit on a patient's bed, second to last there. But while these were important principles, they were often broken, particularly those governing the morality, or so-called chastity, of nurses. Their ability to leave the camp or travel, and most frequently their freedom to associate with serving men. Some of the most famous examples of this form part of the modernist canon, as I'm sure you know. Catherine Barclay, pregnant, out of wedlock, in Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms, Mary Borden's descriptions of the beauty of male bodies before they're stripped of their humanity or deformed, and Vera Britton's memoirs, of course, famously include, among other things, the description of a VAD serving on Malta, having sex on the beach. Flirtation and sexual relationships formed a large part of many women's recollections and letters of the First World War. Mary Rumney, who you heard of earlier, um, recalls in that same interview, the flirting, she says, everybody. What I mean is we paired, naturally. The time didn't drag, she assures us. Pushed on the subject by her interviewer, Rumney recalled that it was very difficult for couples to be alone. And again, I'm quoting her again here, we were very much watched, she reflected. Women shared a cabin, were vigilantly watched by those in charge, but despite the strict prohibitions against sexual relations, Rumney recalled, one woman was compromised. They sent her off the ship. As has been well documented in an imperial arena, the so-called white woman's burden had always included strict prohibitions on what constituted respectable behaviour around, quote-unquote, natives. Dia Burkett's important work on colonial nurses in West Africa has shown that nurses in an imperial arena carried an even greater burden, particularly where so-called morality was concerned. In Britain, there was extensive debate about the women who were allowed to visit men in hospitals in Brighton and the New Forest, as Rosini Visram has shown. In the Middle East, Indian men who in peacetime were cared for by the Indian Medical Service often had to be cared for by British medical services. As the war went on, non-white labour came to play a larger role in the Allied war effort. Despite strict divisions separating them, VADs and Queen Alexandra's nursing staff seemed to have nursed, worked with and otherwise encountered these men regularly and it seems at quite close quarters. 
Two reports written by the Red Cross described the conditions in hospitals for Indian and Egyptian servicemen and labourers which they needed to attend. These confirmed that hospitals had to be set up for these men and give some interesting but brief details of their care. In the main, women served as at RAMC, Royal Army Medical Corps, run hospitals and hospital ships, which catered for British and white imperial troops. Indian servicemen were treated in specialist Indian Army hospitals, hospital ships and convalescent homes, run by the Indian Medical Service and Indian Medical Department. In theory, at least, whilst um, white women from Britain and the Dominions never had to work with or directly treat Indian or other non-white men. But, as I'm going to go on to discuss, they encountered these men in a variety of ways. And it's clear from the handful of accounts that I've, I've looked at so far that the seemingly clear-cut division these arrangements suggest were not nearly so clear-cut during the war. So, back to Pat Tuckett of manicures and frozen feet. So she says in her diary for the 29th of November 1915, stayed up most of the night saying goodbye to the Indian men this AM, and so on. Mary Schofield was a British civilian nurse with the Red Cross Voluntary Aid Detachment. Um, she served in Egypt between 1914 and 1919 and was one of the survivors of the torpedoing of the Aragon, um, the hospital ship Aragon, in 1917. And she says in her diaries, we had a lot of, well, we called them Jippo orderlies. They were very good too. You could ask them to do anything. Very few Egyptian soldiers, they were on the staff. They did all the kitchen work and scrubbing, sort of all the dirty work. So again, in this interview held at the Imperial War Museum, we see her talking about native caterers and quote-unquote Jippo orderlies. Jippos, of course, being Egyptians here. Back to Miss E. Campbell, her diary, very brief diary, leaves us with these quite clear indications of the proximity between these women and these men with whom they really should have been having very little to do with. So, she says on February 9th, left Alex Pursuers by train, and then on February 10th, took on 400 Indians, had 26 in ward. And finally, Anne Hills, who you heard me refer to earlier, writes home to her mum in October 1915. This ship is an Indian hospital ship running between Bombay and Suez, and we were sent on her to bring English wounded home. If she's going to France for Indians, we ought not to go, really. However, it is our latest order. In these brief notes, and all of them, I think, are brief, so I'm really interested in what we can learn from these brief descriptions, not just because I'm interested in how these women reacted to these men, what their relationships with them might have been like, what their attitudes to them might have been like, but also because these men are so difficult to understand and to account for. So we have so little that tells us about the experiences of these men, the men that were treated in these hospitals. And while I think it is problematic to read backwards into their experiences, in the face of a complete lack, often, of archival material about the experiences of Indians or Egyptians serving under allied forces, I think I'm really interested in what these women's encounters, sometimes quite intimate, can tell us about the way these men were treated. Were they comfortable? Who were they treated by? 
you know, so that report on Egyptian and Indian hospitals that I referred to earlier. What does it tell us that, you know, about what food they were given? You know, what provisions were around? What was the status of the hospitals that they were treated in? So I think this work does, does multiple kind of things at the same time. While the focus is, of course, on the women, I think it tells us lots of other things too. So anyway, in these brief notes, Hills expresses exactly the tensions I'm interested in. The pressures of war forced the war office to move white men back to the Western Front. RAMC orderlies were replaced by native Egyptian or Chinese labour in the hospitals, bringing them into close working relationships with women despite the prohibitions against such situations. Here, Anne Hills is aware that to be posted on an Indian hospital ship in close quarters with hundreds of Indian men is against the rules. But the order is given and the women must have spent weeks with these men. There is no evidence that they nursed them, but nor do we have any reason to believe that they did not. It is too early for me to draw conclusions from these very early findings. Yet I cannot help but see them as an important indication of the way in which the war brought people who not only may never have encountered one another, but who should never have encountered one another into contact and to want to know more about what that contact was like. I'd like to use accounts such as these, or ones that tell us a little more, to think about the experiences of these other men in the war. So I've so far outlined the ways in which nurses' own letters and diaries and recollections differ from the official rhetoric. But now I want to spend just the last few minutes, and I'm nearly done, outlining how they differ in important ways, I think, from the ways that their experiences have been outlined by contemporary historians. And by contemporary, I mean ones that were writing at the end of the war. I'll give just two brief examples. Um, in a book by um, Elizabeth Haldane called The British Nurse in Peace and War, published in 1923, Haldane was an accomplished woman, a suffragist, a nursing administrator, and came to play a prominent role in Scottish public life. In her history of nursing in the war, which is devoted for the most part, as these studies still remain, to nursing on the Western Front, Haldane notes some of the difficulties of nursing in the Middle East. During the year 1916, she says, ice and fans were both short, and the sand flies and mosquitoes made the night terrible. Out of doors, there was no breeze, and it was impossible to sleep. Though, of course, punkers, uh, fans, were placed in the wards as soon as possible. Then the blankets and everything else were constantly stolen, even out of occupied wards, as well as the soiled linen from the enteric wards. The one good feature in the Arab's character was that he did not steal from sisters. That was left to the Chinese, who had no such scruples so far as white shoes and kimonos went, end quote. Nowhere but in a woman's account of the war, I would suggest, would we find such an observation. Haldane's casual inclusion of the role of thieving Arabs and Chinese in the lives of those nursing in the Middle East gives us so much more than the mere knowledge that these women were there. It reminds us that the accounts of these women offer a different perspective, a new angle on a global vision of that war that in finding out more about the women and their work, we might also find unexpected things about these silent but essential protagonists of the war too. Similarly, the author John Hay Beath, writing under the pen name Ian Hay, notes in his history of army nursing, um, 100 years of army nursing, 
called, published in 1953. He says, there, and here he's talking about the quote-unquote his language, native voice, principal weakness was for finery of any kind, regardless of its congruity to the occasion. In their native dances, articles of feminine attire, usually pilfered from the sisters' quarters, were much in evidence. One mess boy attended one of these functions clad in a camisole and pair of attenuated shorts, end quote. I think it's no coincidence that in both of these observations, in Haldane's and then um, in Ian Hayes, um, neither of which I have so far been able to find in the life writing of the nurses themselves, I might say, the non-white men steal items of intimate feminine clothing, white shoes, kimonos, camisoles, and shorts. I can only assume that the attenuated shorts here are items of underwear worn with the camisoles. These stories are told as humorous tales in otherwise dense and factual histories of the war. Funny asides, if you like. The emasculated other is here turned into a figure of fun, an unthreatening, effete figure dancing in a woman's underwear. Yet the humour betrays an unease, I would suggest, about the proximity between these men and women. The role of nursing in the Middle East during the First World War is an under-investigated area of First World War studies. It seems to me that the lack of nursing detail and the frivolity of some of these letters, memoirs and other recollections has put researchers off this topic. There seems to be an entirely inappropriate, incongruous amount of fun taking place. Yet these were some of the most difficult places for men and women to serve and they offer us an opportunity to investigate the care of wounded, non-white personnel the experiences of women during the First World War and to assert and more accurately map the heterogeneity of peoples and geographical locations of the First World War. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.